Hello, Duncan Green here uh, with the weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. But first, a little COVID um, interlude. So it's very odd at the moment. So in London, the numbers are really bad. Uh, in the UK, generally, the number of numbers of deaths and infections are very high. I'm probably more scared than I've been, um, you know, just going out of the house. And um, I'm slightly relieved that the LSE has gone fully online, even though I'm really sorry for the students who now just sit in their pods watching stuff on the screens. Um, but my mum got her first injection in her care home this week. My wife's got an injection because of vaccination. She works in the NHS next week. You know, I won't get anything till May, but this is going to make a big difference. So um, it feels like there's a very odd mix of, of emotions around at the moment. A bit hard to concentrate on worthy things like from poverty to power, but I'll give it a go. So uh, this week started with the uh, usual links I liked, dominated this week by the invasion of the capital. I don't, you can't call it a coup if you've actually been involved in serious coups elsewhere. It was more like a sort of mass selfie opportunity with some nasty violence attached um, than a real coup. But um, there was some fascinating stuff on the margins of the, the coverage. Uh, an extraordinary interview with one of the, pro the most photogenic of the protesters, which is not a particularly high bar. The guy with the Jamiroquai hat and the spear, Yellowstone Wolf or QAnon, or he had various names. Extraordinary interview with him, uh, which was a kind of insight into the mad conspiracy world that has flourished online and now came out into the open. And Mike Davis had a very nice piece in New Left Review, and that was one of his lines that this was the moment when this weird world of online conspiracies suddenly became, you know, real life. And just, you know, the, the, the guy being interviewed just talking about weird stuff like Frazzle Drip and Pizza Gate and just a whole world, a sort of a sealed, closed world of, of uh, a, a, the sort of filter bubble to end all filter bubbles, which each, you know, everything reinforces itself and has very little connection with any world of evidence or reason or argument. And I think that's a huge challenge, obviously, for all the people um, who are in that world of reason and research and argument, because you cannot penetrate this um, this sealed world of conspiracy. So uh, I mean, it did get me thinking about how on earth do you deal with with with, with that sort of fundamental um, epistemological divide between between worlds? Uh, and the answer is with great difficulty. Um, second second piece of the week was by uh, Teniola Taylor Teo, who's uh, wrote a great piece on the blog last year on what it's like being an African student at the LSE. And she found it pretty troubling. She's now back in Nigeria uh, working for ISS uh, in The Hague uh, as a trade wonk. And she had a really nice piece on uh, Africa's new continental free trade agreement, which has just gone live this year. Um, and uh, I'll read a couple of pieces. So and her point is that, you know, a free trade agreement is not enough. Uh, and what else do you need for it to really benefit people and benefit economies? So the agreement attempts to solve demand issues by creating a single African market. But there are reasons that Af the countries haven't been able to scale up production to match the consumption of their cities. After petroleum products, cars are the highest value import into Africa. In 2019, the continent spent about $19 billion importing cars. 
and only 3% of this was fulfilled by African exporters. Nigeria spent close to $4 billion importing cars in the same year and has done so for five years. Understanding why Nigerian producers have been unable to meet even the local demand for cars will highlight what needs to change in the context of a single African market. And so Tenny goes on to, to discuss the problems with productivity, with uh, you know, inv investment in, in technology, transport costs between and within countries in Africa. And she comes back to a sort of Harjun Chang message. One way to drive productivity growth may be through using industrial policies by encouraging the transition of economic activity from the simple extraction of raw materials to the more complex production of manufactured goods. So our conclusion is Africa could become a beacon of multilateral cooperation in an increasingly divided world. But will it? Will, it, will the AFC FTA lay the foundation for African advancement or will it be a precursor to the premature unravelling of African unity and cooperation? We'll soon find out. So unless lots of other things are put in place, the free trade agreement may be disappointing, I think was my takeaway. Third uh, post of the week was a nice piece on a subject dear to my heart, diaries, financial diaries, governance diaries. I think diaries are a brilliant way to um, improve the quality of our understanding of how people actually live their lives. And the essence of a diary is you, go, you keep going back to the same families repeatedly over a period of years with local researchers who build trust and you start to uncover the actual ecosystems of survival, of financial management, which are often very hard to see from the outside. And this was a piece by Sandra Nsimiri, Ashara Chumisi and Pat Stice of uh, the LSE's Centre for Public Authority in International Development about a piece uh, of work they, they've been do, involved with on financial diaries in Goma in eastern uh, Congo, in the DRC. Um, and that's part of a, what, a piece of work I've been involved in working with Mercy Corps on their water governance programme. And what they... What they've, what they've found with these financial diaries using local Congolese researchers to go back every two weeks for a year, lots of networks and, and, a, and sort of sources of resilience, but the, the DRC has particular issues. Uh, which, and the idea of this research was to compare what's going on in a fragile and conflict-affected setting, you know, somewhere very messy and violent and dangerous like the DRC, with similar research that's been done in, in slightly less risky places like Kenya and South Africa and, and Bangladesh. Plenty of risks there, but not as severe, I think, as DRC. And I think the overview for me, the takeaway from this piece was that in these really, really sort of messy settings, people fall back on their friends and family, their social networks, including for, for, for livelihoods, and that these kinship networks and friendship networks are more important than overtly financial channels like the guy who come past comes past at the end of the week, takes a few cents every day and gives you it back minus his cut at the end of the month. The kind of thing they were finding in Bangladesh, for example. Uh, and that, that, that was all discovered in this great book called Portfolios of the Poor. And the reason why it's different and more social and closer to home in the DRC is that trust is an even rarer commodity there than in Bangladesh or South Africa or Kenya. And the trust issue affects the research too. And that was really interesting. So one of the greatest challenges in using financial diaries in Goma was households' reluctance to share information about revenues and spending. So firstly, poor neighbourhoods are affected by high crime rates, robberies and murders that oftentimes are targeted and go unpunished. Police are under-resourced and need victims to help 
with petrol, transport, and even communications before they even arrive on the scene. You've got to pay the police for the ta- for the petrol for their car or for the uh, SIM card for their phones if you want them to actually you know enforce the law. But also, when a household is known to have money or valuable assets such as motorcycles or electronics, it becomes vulnerable to burglary. So people were really reluctant to talk to our researchers because they didn't want it getting around that they had some savings, that they had some money, that they had a you know something worth stealing. So people are simultaneously drawn together through solidarity and mutual support and pulled apart by the social responsibilities of wealth and the crimes that plague those perceived to have it. So it's not just crimes, but the fact that if you have money or assets, you're supposed to give them out to a large number of friends and relatives. So people feel a huge social pressure to do that. And then they understandably um, uh, try and keep it quiet. I remember talking to a Uh, a Ghanaian taxi driver in London who said he didn't dare go back to Ghana because he had to spend so much money on all the presents that were expected of him that actually, you know, he had had cancelled trips because he couldn't afford to go back and see his friends and family because of this kind of social expectation. So what, what the researchers found was that while people became more at ease discussing expenditures with each visit, revenues were still hard to assess. And likewise, so that people didn't want to say how much they were earning. They were happy to talk about how much they were spending, except expenses related to extramarital relationships, like regular support with rent or sustenance for a mistress, or the receipt of such support if the mistress was the head of the household in question, were routinely concealed. So this is, you're getting into really tricky territory here. You go in, you, you, you look at a household's finances, and you find that the, 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 the man of the household has got a mistress. And people really don't want to talk about that for obvious reasons. The answer to getting a lot of this all seems to come back to relationships. So what the what the researchers, the LSE researchers, ended up doing was not just going to visit, but becoming friends, um, you know, going to parties, funerals, family occasions, building up trust, and they just did it automatically because that's how people work in you know in Congo and and that enabled them not just to get more trust but actually to spot things you know if they were hanging around chatting and suddenly the local army officer arrives with a present for his mistress then you start to see what's going on in the household so absolutely fascinating sort of real life research quandaries um, uh, raised in that piece fourth piece of the week was um, uh, someone who's been working at Oxfam for 12 years uh, Tim Gore and over that time uh, he's written a number of really great pieces for the blog. He's led our work on climate change, climate justice, as we now call it, um, and has also worked on food and 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 um, you know, a number of livelihoods and economic issues. Um, and he's leaving, which is a tragedy for Oxfam, although he's getting a nice new job um, working on in similar area. But he just wanted to reflect on some of the successes, and I thought this was a really nice piece and he identified five top yeah he chose five of the top wins very yeah stress that this wasn't all about Oxfam this is not just a big big up Oxfam exercise you know it's always working in coalitions with lots of people but he just wanted to celebrate some of the things which he thinks we helped achieve so first one he called people not polar bears so right in the early days when he first arrived in 2008 um, climate change was discussed as that thing that's killing polar bears in the Arctic. Um, and one of the things Oxfam spent very, you know, invested heavily in was 
trying to get a shift in the debate to say this is affecting people as well. This isn't just about polar bears. Um, uh, and so we, you know, we sent activists to extremely hot climate com uh, uh, negotiations in places like Bali, dressed as polar bears with signs saying save the humans, just to try and get that message across in a very visceral way. And Tim thinks that, that achieving that and making the climate change, helping make climate change a discussion about human development and human uh, survival was a big win. Second one was about climate finance. So very early on in this whole debate, uh, a colleague of ours, Ray, Kay Rayworth, who has since become you know, some, a global superstar for her donut economics work, did a really simple calculation on you know, back of an envelope type thing and estimated that developing countries needed about $50 billion a year to adapt to uh, climate change. And that was picked up and developed further by uh, Gordon Brown and Nick Stern and became a $100 billion figure that, be, that sort of was the benchmark for discussions on climate finance. Third one that Tim mentions is getting food companies to start taking their emissions seriously and reporting on their carbon footprint. The fourth, fourth one was challenging fossil fuel financing. Um, you know, the, 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 the amount of subsidies that go into fossil fuels for all sorts of political uh, reasons just encourages dependence and, and, and sustains dependence on a very damaging part of the economy. And we had a bit of a sort of tightrope to walk there because what you don't want is to start saying immediately to developing countries, you know, you must stop doing these things which developed countries have been doing for decades and now don't need to do anymore. So you, there's a sort of equity issue there and we always focused more on rich countries and what they needed to do. But we did also start getting into the debate on, on, on uh, poorer countries, getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies. And then the fifth one was a broader piece on climate equity, a whole series of fair shares reports on finance emissions reductions, just pointing out that you know, the richer people and the richer countries are massively responsible for the problem and they need to take an appropriate share of the responsibility for sorting it out. And one of the things I would say about that list of five, which I think is great, is it does sort of reinforce a feeling I've always had that it's easy to have a big impact when you get in early on a new issue. Because when new issues come in, there are fewer players, things aren't fixed, policies aren't fixed, there's a certain amount of malleability around, and you can have a bigger impact if you get in quick. Once you wait till it's become a major public policy issue, it's just much more fixed in place and much harder to, to budge. So I think a very useful piece of how change happens work from Tim Gore there. And I'm going to get him to keep writing for us if he if he doesn't mind uh, in his new role. Final one was uh, just a, um, earlier this week, I had uh, I was cross examined for 80 minutes. It was quite grueling, actually, by um, some students of accountancy at Cambridge who are looking at issues, wider issues, not just uh, spreadsheets, but um, accountability, and uh, they've actually been reading How Change Happens, my book, for their course. So they wanted to cross-examine me, um, and uh, I was absolutely drained by the end of it because they were chucking in questions on all sorts of things, from what do you think about Greta Thunberg to you know how do you manage, uh, how do you stop yourself from getting depressed to all sorts. So it was really quite a personal uh, cross-exam. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I wrote it up. I'm not sure if it was too self-indulgent to publish it on the blog, but hey, that's what blogs are like. Um, but an example, do you see declining American influence around the world as a good or a bad thing? 
Yeah, and each time I got a question like this, I had to sort of take a deep breath and think, oh dear, what do I think? And then, and I suppose I, I look back on my background, which was you know, initially working on Central America during the 1980s. So on one hand, my background is on Latin America, where we saw the negatives of US influence, support for dictators, abuse of human rights, etc. I spent much of my 20s standing outside the US embassy in London, protesting and feeling completely futile because we were you know, a small band of people saying down, down American imperialism and this vast... Uh, embassy building with an enormous golden eagle on top. Uh, you just felt completely stupid, but we did it. Um, so in that sense, the decline of US influence is hugely desirable. It could lead to a more civilized exchange and a more democratic world system. But it, the emphasis on the could, because the transition between one stable geopolitical order and another is fraught with difficulty and quite dangerous. So just as we're seeing at the moment, the decline of America and the rise of China is already generating low-level conflicts, and we hope they remain low-level, but it's a period of risk and danger. So I have very mixed feelings about declining American influence, despite my gut reaction of good in terms of my Latin America background. And on that note, have a great weekend, everybody. Hope you all get vaccinated as soon as possible, and then we get out the other side of this horrible time. Bye.